Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, I'm just going to introduce uh, Roman Grossfogel, uh, who's an associate professor of ethnic studies at the University of California, Berkeley. Uh, and he's authored or co-edited uh, many works, uh, The Modern Colonial Capitalist World System in the 20th Century, uh, Migration, Transnationalization and Race in a Changing New York, and Puerto Rican Jam, Rethinking Colonialism and Nationalism. He is a research associate of the Maison de Science de la Homme in Paris and Fernand Brodel Center in New York. I hope I pronounced all that right. He's going to be talking about uh, Islamophobia, uh, Andalusia, Al Andalusia, and uh, Fanon. So uh, I'll leave it to you. Thank you very much. Thank you very much for the invitation. Assalamu alaikum to all of you. Uh, I wanted to basically today. Uh, since the program tomorrow is for a broader public, maybe I, w I thought maybe I'm able today to go into more detail about some <coughs> things that might not be able to be covered tomorrow. Uh, usually when you do a public talk, time is more limited and it's, it's more difficult to, to cover the, all the issues. But I think that uh, given the times we live in Europe today, uh, I want to go into detail of things that I'm going to say tomorrow, but today I expect now to go into maybe more detail than I'll be able to do tomorrow. Uh, the first thing that I want to do is, is talk a little bit more about the things I said in the Genocide Memorial Day in January here, that I mentioned many things very fast, and I know there were many uh, many people in the audience who contacted me and wanted to know more about the things I said there and wanted me to go maybe deeper into some of these issues. That's why I also asked you please record it because maybe if you put it online, the audio people that were not are not present here might benefit from this. Uh, <clears throat> that day I, I was talking more about decolonizing the Holocaust. That talk is online and people can check it out. But I mentioned there many issues in relation to the history of Europe, the history of the world, history of when exactly this thing we call racism emerged historically, uh, what happened with Islamophobia, the old Islamophobia in Europe that, that goes back in time, you know, to the Crusades and maybe even before, uh, and all these things, you know. So I went into detail. Into I, I, I couldn't go into detail in that history. I want to go a little bit into detail in that history. First thing that I think we need to to to, and I think this is very relevant for the debates that are going on in Europe today, because there are, there is a, a an emerging, I mean, very strong Islamophobia all over Europe today. And there is a debate if Islamophobia is a form of racism or not. Okay, so some people say it is, some people say it is not. And there are countries, whole countries, like for example France, that claim is not a form of racism and therefore should not be included in the, at the level of European community as a form of racial discrimination. It should be excluded from that. And, and you know, so these are the current debates. And we need to... And a lot of the discourses that are being developed in Europe today about uh, what is European Europe, what is uh, Western civilization, all these civilizational discourses that we have today 
are really very, very, uh, very problematic and, and I think requires uh, some historical understandings on, on these questions. I want to start with uh, the myth of the reconquest. There is this idea that the Muslims invaded Spain and invaded Southern Europe in, I believe, the 8th century after Christ and that at that moment in time uh, there was an invasion. This is the first thing that you get in a lot of the uh, European scholarship about the Muslims, etc., and the presence of the, that period, you know, or that uh, region called uh, Al-Andalus, that was, uh, you know, Islamic Spain. No, uh, <clears throat> Al-Andalus was uh, uh, lasted for. Eight, about 800 years, something like that, uh, uh, 700 years. Uh, it, the myth that we've been kind of, you know, that is a foundational myth of the history and the formation of European identity is the idea that uh, somewhere or another, Europe made itself by uh, destroying the power of Al-Andalus in the south of, of Europe, especially in Spain, in the Iberian Peninsula, and uh, that this is a response to a previous invasion by the Muslims. Okay? Now, I want to go back a little bit back into history, to the 8th century, okay? because part of what happened is that uh, the, the, the justification of the Spanish monarchy uh, conquest of Al-Andalus is that there was this previous Muslim invasion and that what they were doing were just liberating the territory from Muslims. Well, let's go to the 8th century. At the moment when Tariq, uh, the, the commander of troops who came and entered through Gibraltar, through the south of what is called today Spain and entered to this territory, that at the time was called Hispania. It has a, a different name than uh, what it has today. Hispania was a, a, a term used by the Rom Roman Empire to call that territory Hispania. And what you have there was not exactly the Spain we know today, or we even know it's not the Spain of 500 years ago or 600 years ago. It was a, a place where you have a lot of indigenous people, the Iberian people, with many languages, many cultures, okay, that were located there in different locations, oppressed by the power of the Visigoth elites and the bishops of the uh, Vatican. The bishops of the Vatican, together with the Visigoths, exercised a, a domination over the Iberian people there. The Iberian people were had different languages. It's not, I mean, what we call today Spain was spoken in a small region of Spain, and it was Castellano in, in Castilla. It was a small region at the time. So it was a dialect of one region. It was not like everybody was speaking Spanish. So this is not Spain. This is something else, okay? So if there was such a thing as a Muslim invasion, okay, if we accept that term, and I'm going to put it on quote, we accepted for the moment 
It was not an invasion to Spain because Spain did not exist in the eighth century after Christ. That didn't that entity we call Spain did not exist. Okay, so the Muslims did not invade Spain. Okay, first. Now the second thing I want to put in question is the idea of a conquest. Because how do you explain that a few thousand Muslim troops entered through the south of Spain? Uh, I'm using the term Spain now for purposes of communication because in fact the Iberian people call it called that territory in a different way. The same way as in the Americas, there were places called uh, Tahuantinsuyo, Teotihuacan, it has different names than what they have today. It's not Mexico, it's not Peru, it's Teotihuacan, Tahuantinsuyo. I mean, it had different names before the European colonization. The same thing happened in that place, okay? Uh, so I'm using the term Spain for purposes of communication. So you know where, where I'm talking, the geography of the place I'm talking about, but that's it. Okay, that was not the term that existed at the time. Now, when the Muslims arrived, you cannot explain that in less than 60 days at the time, without motor, without airplanes, without anything, okay, the Muslims basically took over the whole Iberian Peninsula in less than 60 days, okay? Without motors, without airplanes, with any, any of that. A few thousand people. How do you explain that? Here is where you have work done already, and it's already there. It's, it's unfortunately it's in other languages, but in it's not translated to English as far as I know. But for example, the the work of Olague, who is a Spanish historian in the early 50s, late 40s, early 50s, who wrote a book entitled "The Islamic Revolution in the West." In this book, he put in question the idea of a Muslim invasion. And he documents how what happened was that the Iberian people who were practicing other spiritualities, indigenous spiritualities of that territory, but also there were Iberian people who were already practicing Christianity, but not the Christianity of Christendom, not the Christianity of the Roman Empire. That was already the Christianity of the power structure with all the dualism that we have, you know, uh, in, in that kind of Christianity. It was the early form of Christianity of the first four centuries uh, before it became an ideology of the, of the Roman Empire. And that early Christianity has a notion similar to the indigenous people, cosmologies, the Iberian people, to Tahwit in Islam, a notion of unity, okay? It was not a dualistic notion. I'm saying this because there was a double identification happening with the presence of the Muslims in that territory, and that was an identification in terms of spirituality. They saw what the Muslims were practicing as a continuation of what they were already doing. There was no contradiction there. They saw the Islam as something that, that was closer to what they were doing than the kind of Christianity that was in power in that territory, okay? And because of the notion of, you know, a cosmological notion of unity, you see, it was not this dualism of Christianity, but also because they were being oppressed by the Visigoth elites and by the uh, bishops of the church of the Vatican, they all went together with the Muslims. And what happened there was not a war of conquest, was a war of liberation. 
because what happened was that the 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 population joined the Muslims and they went. That's how you you get. That's the only way you can explain that in less than sixty days, a few thousand troops can take over the whole Iberian Peninsula. At that time, without motor or machines or anything like this, and that's because there was a massive joining of people together to defeat the power of the Visigoths and the bishop of the Vatican. That's what happened. And so people, I'm saying this, I even hear here, uh, even Muslims using the word conquest. And that word, we should throw it away. Because in fact, it was not exactly a conquest. It was a war of liberation in which people joined it together and by the way, there were even Christians joining the struggle because at the time the power of the the the, the Muslims allowed and, and and you know for the practice of Christianity and Jews and other people were oppressed under the Visigoths. So and they were not requested to be converted to join the struggle. And after the struggle, they have their spaces in the society under Islamic power in Al-Andalus. So the idea that they, they came and invaded and conquered and, and then imposed Islam on people is a projection of what the, the Spanish monarchy and the West have been doing for the past 500 years, projecting that into the past. Because in fact, the, the, the Muslim or Islamic authorities that were put forward there allow for a multiplicity of spiritualities to coexist. Okay, something that was not allowed under the under Christendom. Okay, uh, and I'm going to this history because there is the Book of Olawe, but there are also historians, recent historians in Spain who are following this thesis in Spain. Uh, they are not translated to English as far as I know. I I I heard there is an article of Olawe in English, some article published I don't know a long time ago. But his book, his major work, is still on, on trans, you know, haven't been translated. And so uh, I'm saying this because I hear, I have heard many Muslims in Europe using the word conquest, you know, and, and we have to revise our language and, and go back to the, to the history of what happened there to get a sense of what, what, what was going on. Now, uh, the, the whole historiography that was built by the Spanish monarchy and later the West was to say that the so-called reconquest was, the RE there was put there to represent the uh, war of the Spanish monarchy in the Iberian Peninsula against Al-Andalus as a war of liberation against some invasion. In fact, if, I always say in Spain, until you eliminate the RE from your imaginary, there's not going to be a decolonization of your subjectivity and your view of the world because you will always be feeling yourself as the victims of Muslims, you see? In fact, what happened was that that was a war of conquest. The, the, the monarchy, the Spanish monarchy, conquest, conquest, the, the, the territory, uh, uh, and it was not a reconquest, and imposed a system in which there was a correlation between political authority, the identity of the political authority, the spirituality of the population, the identity of the population. After a correspondence between 
You have one identity, one state, and one spirituality. Not possible to have coexistence of spiritualities or identities like happened under the power of Islamic authority in Al-Andalus. That was eliminated. That everywhere they conquered, they, they, they imposed this one-on-one -on -one correlation, okay? And is here you have the seeds of what we call today the nation state, where you have this idea or this fiction that people, uh, people's identity should <coughs> correspond to the identity of the state. And, that, uh, and so this, this, uh, this correspondence, you could see that already in the conquest of the Spanish monarchy over Andalusian territory. Now, uh, <clears throat> why the Muslims were defeated? There is, that's a long history and another talk, okay? Because I think they were defeated out of their own weaknesses too. Because there were also, you know, power struggles between themselves. There were divisions. When the Caliphate fell, then they, 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 they were balkanized in political structures, different sultanates that coexisted next to each other. And the, the, the Christian monarchy took advantage of these divisions to divide and rule and brought some in their side against the others and things like that until finally they conquer everybody. So this, this history needs to be retold, you know? And I'm not saying there was, a, a, how can I say that? There was no problem in the Islamic a power there. There were, of course, there were problems and there were weaknesses and there were on those problems led to weaknesses that finally led to a defeat. But uh, uh, the point is, and there are things we can rescue from that history, and that is the possibility of having a, a Muslim political authority that respects multiple spiritualities and identities without imposing this idea of one state, one nation, one spirituality that was imposed by the Spanish monarchy. And the history is told upside down now, because now we hear it was a reconquest that the Muslims were imposing Islam to everybody, that nobody else could do it, you know, that people were, per that Jews were persecuted, which is completely Orientalist Zionist history we hear now about that history that is just completely crazy because as a matter of fact, Jews were escaping the pogroms of Christian Europe over centuries going to Islamic territories because they have rights recognized in Islamic territories they didn't have in Christian rule territories, you know? So all of this is now history is completely upside down uh, with Orientalists, Zionist Orientalists, and so on. Uh, now, we have in the, uh, uh, at the end of, the, the, the reason I'm going to that history is because I want to come back to the question about what exactly is racism, so that we have the tools to really confront uh, the the kind of debates that are happening today in Europe, okay? Uh, and I want to argue that Islamophobia is a form of racism. This is what I want to argue. Uh, and, and the question is, okay, what is racism and how it came about? Now, I'm going to jump several, you know, centuries of history and go to 1490, 1492 when Columbus goes and talks with the king and the queen of Spain with the Indian Enterprise Project. And he comes and shows this to the king and the queen, and the queen say, hey, this is great, okay? But there's one problem. We first need to 
destroyed the last remaining bastion of Al-Andalus, and then we're ready to go elsewhere. But right now, the priority is to unify the whole Iberian territory under the Spanish uh, uh, Catholic monarchy, okay? And, and then we're ready to, with, with this plan to go on. But the last remaining part is Granada. And we need to destroy Granada. After <coughs> that, we can talk about this. Okay, so Columbus went to a place called Santa Fe in the outskirts of Granada and stayed there waiting for the fall of Granada. He was just waiting for that to then immediately run to Granada and talk with the king and the queen about the plan. And uh, in, in January 2nd, 1482, it when finally uh, the Granada Sultanate, it's not a kingdom, it's a sultanate, that was, that's the way it's called in the literary kingdom because they're projecting European categories to what was going on there. And they destroyed the, the Sultanate of Granada and uh, in January 2nd, 1492. Now, January 11, 1492, what, how many days, nine days later, Columbus meet with the king and the queen in Granada, in, Al, in the Alhambra, in the Alhambra. They meet there. He comes and say, you know, remember the plan. Here it is again. You told me that I was going to, when this fall, then we go there. Oh, yes, of course. Here is the money. Here is the resources. Go ahead. So they gave him green light and the authorization of the Spanish Empire to go into the conquest of the Americas. Now, the idea, another Western mythology, is that he was taking a risk in his life because supposedly at the time they thought the world was a like a square, not, not, not rounded, you know, and that he was going like this, you know, and then he, he was risking going to a precipice because supposedly the, the, they didn't know the earth. This is just fairy tales that they put you there, you know, to, to make represent Columbus like a hero. In fact, we know today that uh, Columbus, as well as many of these uh, navigators sent by the Spanish Empire uh, to conquest elsewhere, uh, they were going with maps. And these maps were, have been produced, there is a debate who produced them, but there is a book published showing that in the period of Al-Andalus, there were already na Islamic navigators that have arrived to the Americas. Okay, there, there's a book published in Spain by a woman who have records, historical records that were in the library of her family and managed to put together this showing that the Islamic navigators of Al-Andalus have already arrived to the Americas, uh, but never colonized the America. They just have traits and things like that. And there is evidence to that the Chinese have produced a world map in 1421 and that the Vatican missions to China brought those maps to Italy and that's why these navigators were all Italians, Genovese. Uh, Columbus, Americo Vespucio, Magallanes, they were all from Italy and they were coming with this map. These maps were secret maps and they were using it you know, as a tool to negotiate with the Spanish Empire. But they, you could see in the diaries that people who have done work on this, like Enrique Dussel, a philosopher of liberation in Latin America, who has a, an article showing in the diary of Columbus and some of these navigators that they were going, while they were writing in their diary, they were anticipating geographical things. And so how could they anticipate geographical things? They were never there. I mean, 
only if they're watching or looking at a map, okay? Uh, so these are things that uh, uh, we need to also question, this fairy tale. But anyway, the point is that finally he gave, he gave, he had the permission to go to conquest the Americas. Now, uh, two things happened between January 2nd, 1492, and October 12, 1492, that is in the same year when Columbus arrived to the Americas. I'm using again the Americas like I was using Spain, okay? It's, it's the way we know where he was today in our imaginary, but at the time it was not called the Americas, okay? It had different names over there, okay? I'm using colonial terminology because we're so ingrained into colonial imaginary that there's no way to communicate if we use the old terms or names of those territories of the indigenous people before, you see? Uh, so that's, all these modern identities, even geographical territories already, they are already colonial names, but anyway. Uh, so uh, two things happened between January 2nd, the fall of Granada, January 11, the negotiation between Columbus and the king and the queen, and October 12, when he arrived to the Americas, okay? The first thing is that very fast, the uh, king and the queen, you know, the Spanish monarchy violated the, the agreements of the capitulation. There were capitulations signed with the, uh, Grana the Sultan of Granada, who was defeated, and there were some capitulations signed. One of them was uh, to respect property and spirituality, etc., of Muslim and Jews. Okay? And uh, February 1492, they decided to expel Jews from the Iberian Peninsula. So they immediately violated that agreement. Uh, another thing that happened is that in going to the Americas, they stopped in Canaria Islands and they colonized uh, the people there uh, as a stepping stone to, to, to keep going towards the Americas. And, and then October 12, Columbus arrived. So first thing we need to look at is how the methods used to colonize the Americas are the same method they used to colonize Al-Andalus. All the evangelization processes, ideologies, etc. they brought them with them to colonize indigenous people over there. So that's what they knew, okay? And so they carry on this into America. Into America. One of the things that was carried on was the idea of purity of blood. Purity of blood was the term used by the Spanish monarchy in the conquest of Andalusia. What they meant by purity of blood in the conquest of Andalusia was not yet fully racist. It was a proto-racist term because it was more about once we conquer the territory, let me check out who has really converted and who have not. So in order to surveil the population and check if they were really converting or they were faking conversion, because the, 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 the method used is what is called settler colonialism. It was already going on there in Andalusia. They will expel people from the land, kill them or expel them from the territory and take over the land, bringing families from uh, Castilian and other parts of Spain that were already Christians, you see, and take over the territory. What is happening in Palestine today, no? And that was going on already in the 15th century there. And what they did then was to 
eh, take over the, the territories, eh, impose eh, eh, forced conversion. Those who didn't convert were either expelled or killed. Okay, so there was a genocide going on, a genocide going on. And, eh, and then you have eh, the, the idea of purity of blood was a, a concept to that the state used to surveil population. That is, they wanted to know your, your family genealogy. They wanted to know who your parents or grandparents were. So that if you have anywhere in your genealogy, gen, genealogical tree, you say in English, uh, if you have a Muslim or Jews, then we need to surveil you carefully to see if you're really converting or you're just faking it, okay? And, uh, and so that was the idea of purity of blood. We want to know if you have purity of blood or not. If you didn't have purity of blood, we're going to surveil you to make sure that you're not, you're not practicing these things privately in your home and just faking it publicly, okay? Faking conversion public. So this was the idea. It was, a, I would call it proto-racist idea because it's not yet fully racist, as I'm going to explain in a few minutes, because the same idea when you arrive to the Americas it chief meaning. Because if you, the first thing that Columbus put in his diary when he stepped out of the boat was, my God, these people have no religion. Uh, the idea of people without religion today, you might say, oh, he was saying they were atheists. No, that's the idea of the 21st century. I say people without religion, say, oh, people are atheists. Christian imaginary, at the end of the 15th century, the idea of people without religion will have a different connotation. Because up till that point, Christian imaginary, human beings have got gods or religion or whatever, but they cannot have no religion. If you're a human being, you have a religion. You might have the wrong one. You, you might have the wrong gods. We might kill each other about that. But you're a human because you have a religion, you have a god or gods, whatever. So they classify population in the world, humans, on the basis of having a religion. Now, what happened with people that have no religion? In the Christian imaginary of the time, having no religion have a different connotation. Men, these people are, have no soul. They have no religion. Therefore, if they have no religion, they have no soul. And if they have no soul, who are them then? Then they are like cows, horses, monkeys, that we found in the fauna, okay? Because they have no, no, no God, no religion, no soul then, and if they have no soul, they're like animals. And if they're like animals, we could incorporate them by force into the labor process that is enslave them like a horse or a cow or any other animal without being a seen in the eyes of God. That was the, the, the whole argument about people without religion. Columbus, he brought some of these species, quote-unquote, in, in cages in his first trip back to, to the Iberian Peninsula. And he landed in, in what is called today Portugal and crossed Portugal all the way, Spain, all the way to Madrid, passing through many towns with indigenous people in cages. You, you see, and people watching, what you know, these so-called barbarians, whatever, okay, like animals, no? He brought them, captured some of them, brought them to, 
to the king and the queen to show them and things like this. And they immediately enslaved them. They were immediately enslaved. Now, the whole debate of people with, uh, with religion or not, or people without soul or not, became a major debate in the first half of the 16th century. Between 1492 and 1552, there was a huge debate in Europe about who, this, who are these people we found over there, okay? In the so-called New World, okay? Because we never knew about them. Are they the old, uh, are they all tribes of Judaism lost over there? Are they, uh, they were trying to figure out who are these people, okay? And so there was a huge debate because there were people say, hey, forget about this thing, don't waste your time looking at biblical things. These people are just like cows and monkeys. So they have no soul. And there were other people saying, well, wait a minute, maybe they are one of these tribes lost that, you know, we never found them. Here they are. You know, and maybe they have a soul. And if they have a soul, maybe we are committing a crime in doing what we're doing with them. So there was this debate. There were critical voices inside the Spanish Empire about this. The Spanish Empire already decided in practice that they have enslaved them. And they were very rapidly being wiped out because they were submitted to forced labor. And a lot of them were dying. It was a form of genocide through forced labor. And, uh, and so by the, in, in 1537, the Pope passed a decree saying, well, you know what? These people have soul, but it's animal soul. Alma animal. Okay? And so this was how the Pope solved the problem. But then the Spanish Empire said, well, we need to solve this. If the Pope made this decree, we have to do something here and see what are we going to decide about this. And so they have the trial in 1552 between Las Casas and Sepúlveda. Las, this is, at the time, the power of the authority of knowledge was in the hands of the church, the, the Catholic Church, okay? The, the, so the, the, the decision of the Spanish Empire was put in the hands of the School of Salamanca in Spain, that they were theologians, okay, priests, and they were to decide about this. So you have Sepúlveda, on the one hand, arguing that these people have no soul, therefore, they should be enslaved and there's no sin the idol go to enslave them and the argument he gave to show that they were barbarians non-human was to say that they have no sense of private property and commerce this is very interesting although this is a theological discussion the, the argument is very capitalist He's saying no private property, no commerce. Therefore, these people are like animals. They're not civilized, they're barbarians, you know, they're like animals. Okay? They have no soul. Now, Las Casas brought a different argument. He said, these people have soul, but the problem is that these people are, uh, they have, um, um, they are barbarians that need to be Christianized. Okay? So they are in a childish stage. They haven't matured. They're like kids, like children. And so what we, need to, what we need to do is we should not enslave them and we should Christianize them. Uh, the position of last, in that debate, uh, they decided to 
accept the position of las casas, and then you might think they emancipated the, the indigenous people, but that, that's not what they did. They put them to work in another form of forced labor that was called the encomienda. So they were taken out of slavery and put into another form of coerced labor called the encomienda, okay? And they were basically forced to Christianize through the methods they have used already in Andalusia. But the point I'm trying to, to make here is, is that this debate, so after, after this trial is they decide then to replace indigenous people from slavery with Africans, because Africans have no soul. And that's when you have the captive trade. They will, they will capture and kidnap people in Africa and brought them to the Americas to be enslaved. And they did that as a reply, as, a, as to replace the indigenous people in slave labor Okay, that put in the encomienda, another form of course labor, and then brought Africans to do slavery, okay? To be enslaved. Uh, but the important thing of this debate to the question of Islamophobia is the following. Islamophobia and Judeophobia, the old medieval form of this religious discrimination, okay, that was already going on for centuries in medieval Europe, way back since the Crusades, okay? It was the Islamophobia and Judeophobia was going on. It was a form of religious discrimination that I call it proto-racist, not yet fully racist, because the, the, they were still considered as part of the human. That is, as long as they convert and fully convert, they were accepted into the Christian community, okay? Because the question was a question of religious discrimination and not so much racial discrimination. Purity of blood did not have the same connotation as it acquired in the Americas when the question of having a soul or not became the major thing. When you put the question in terms of having a soul or not, now purity of blood acquired a different meaning. Because now purity of blood means if you're a human or not. Now it's not purity of blood to see if you fake conversion or not. Now purity of blood acquire a different connotation. So what I'm trying to say now is that, on the one hand, the methods of colonization and evangelization they use in Andalusia, they were brought to the Americas. And then I wanna see what happened as the boomerang effect of colonialism, when they colonized the America, then what effect it has over Islamophobia and Judeophobia in Europe. And what I'm saying is that this question about having a soul or not polluted and contaminated the old medieval religious discrimination against Muslims and Jews and turned these forms of discrimination from religious discrimination to racial discrimination. Because now these subjects are going to be submitted to the question of having a soul or not. They will be classified as people without a soul. Okay? And this is going to now change and that's happened in the 16th century because this debate about indigenous people contaminated the debate about Muslims and Jews inside the Iberian Peninsula. Because then they start saying, well, you know, it's not now anymore that they have an inferior God or inferior religion. It's that the people who pray to that inferior God or practice that inferior religion, they are inferior themselves. That is, they're non-human because they have no soul. 
So now the question of conversion becomes secondary. Now they don't care if you, are, you have converted or you were born, because now the, the converted Muslims were called Moriscos and the converted Jews were called Marranos in Spain. But now these, these are the, the, the converted to Christianity. Now the question of conversion becomes secondary because now you don't have a soul. Now you, it doesn't matter how much you converted. It doesn't matter if you were born, um, you know, baptized since you were born because a lot of the sons and daughters of Morisco were being baptized since they were born. Now that doesn't matter because now you don't have a soul. Now the question is more radical. Now the question is not if you practice an inferior religion of the wrong God. Now is that it doesn't matter how much you convert, you're not unequal to me. Because I have a soul, you don't have a soul. And so this shifted the whole debate and the whole, the old dis, uh, uh, religious discrimination of the medieval ages into modern racial discrimination. Because then it turned it into a racial question, not a question about uh, having the wrong religion or anything like that. And now it doesn't solve your situation to convert. Because now the question is more radical. Now is that you are not unequal to me, but you're an animal. And so it doesn't matter if you tell me that you've been baptized and now you're Christian. It doesn't matter now. So what they did was immediately they started enslaving Moriscos. Even though they were already converted, even though they were, were baptized and so on, they started enslaving Moriscos in the 16th century in Spain. And the issue continued until finally in 1609 they decided to expel them. Because now the question of conversion becomes like secondary, because now the question is not anymore the old medieval religious discrimination question. Now it's the modern racial question in terms of people who have a soul or not. Now, watch carefully because people there, you will have people saying, well, but this is not exactly racism because the word race is not there. Yes, the word race is not there because the word race became later. But that doesn't mean it's less racist because the question about what is racism is a hierarchy of superiority inferiority along the line of the human. It's a power hierarchy that classify population along the line of the human. And so people who are expelled below the line of the human are classified as non-human or subhuman. And that could be done through a religious market, such as having a soul or not, or it could be done through color of skin, or it could be done through ethnicity, or it could be done through religion. There are many ways to mark this. Part of the contemporary debate about racism is that racism, you only have racism in the 19th century. I will argue that's not the case, because if you watch carefully, what you have in the 19th century is a secularization of the narratives of Sepúlveda Las Casas. The Sepúlveda argument, people without soul, now that the authority of knowledge passed from the church and from Christian theology to science in the 19th century, shifted from people without soul to people without the DNA. You see, it's a secularization of the same thing, but now with scientific argument. But saying the same thing, people without soul now is people without the DNA. You don't have the human genes, okay? And the argument of Las Casas, of people, barbarians people to Christianize in the 19th century with the scientific now uh, knowledge as the authority of knowledge, is now primitive people 
to be civilized. So they went from barbarians to be Christianized to primitive that have to be civilized. And this second narrative is carried on by the anthropologists and the social scientists. The other narrative, the Sepulveda narrative, and you know, from not having a soul to not having the DNA is more the biological uh, branch of science. The other, the Las Casas narrative gets secularized through the social science branch of science. You see, and it's, you know, from the barbarian to the primitive, from Christianized to civilized, okay? And uh, I'm saying this because, in fact, what is being repeated in having soul or not, or having the DNA or not, okay, is a fundamental, the same fundamental issue, is if you're a human or not. So what defines racism is racism is a form of classification that happen institutionally through power structure and that classify population along the line of the human. The people who are above the line are considered superior, people below the line are considered inferior. Now, if you examine this definition and come back to the debates about racism, okay, about Islamophobia, okay, uh, it, it goes to the uh, it, it goes to the following question. You could put a line in your notebook like this, and then above put an S of superior, below put an I of inferior, uh, next to the S of superior put equal to H of human, next to the I of inferior put equal to non-human NH or S age, subhuman, and this difference is important, but it's about divide and rule. Yeah. You put the people below the line to fight each other about who is sub and who is non-human, you see? And one that is called sub feels superior to the other, even though both are below the ones, I mean, and then it's, you have the it's divide and rule. And, and then you put above the line, so S equal H equal, and this is a Fanonian concept, zone of being. Okay, and then below you put I equal a non-human subhuman equal zone of non-being. So you have the zone of being above the line, zone of non-being below the line. Why the notion of being non-being? Because it's the, the social existence of those groups classified both the, the line of the human, their forms of living, their forms of spirituality. Their, their culture, their habits, their behavior is considered superior, human, while the, the people below the line are dehumanized and therefore their form of existence, their forms of living, their forms of being, their forms of spirituality, their forms are considered inferior relative to the ones on the top. And so here you have the, the hierarchy of racism that covers many areas of social existence. It's not just economics or politics. It's also epistemology, it's also spirituality, it's also pedagogy, so it's everything that human beings do is considered superior in the zone of being as opposed to zone of non-being, okay? And so this classification is going to, it has been formed out of this history, I'm telling you, first, having soul or not, then having DNA or not, then having the proper culture or the inferior culture, etc. No? So there are many markers to this. 
one of the fundamental markers historic have been color, but it's not the only one. There are many other markers, like religion. Like, look at the, the, 20, the 16th century debate about Jews and Muslims. You were marked as a Jew or a Muslim, but once the question of having a soul or not comes in, it gets redefined, you see, into pushing to the zone of non-being, push dehumanize into as a non-human, okay? So you could be, racism is a structure of superiority inferiority along the line of the human, a social power structure, but the marker, how you mark superiority inferiority is historically bounded. It could be through color, but there are many, many moments, like for example, with the Irish. With the Irish, they couldn't mark it through color because they were all the same skin color. So what did they use? Religion. And so the Protestant were the zone of being, then the Catholics were in the zone of non-being. And when you see the narrative used to talk about the Catholics in Ireland, it's similar to the way they talk about blacks in the Americas, you see, and etc. So you see this, uh, the marker is bounded to uh, the local history, colonial history, imperial history in different regions of the world. We shouldn't get caught in the idea that racism is this or that. That is, there is a, a, a tendency to think that the form of racism in which we are born is the universal form of racism elsewhere. And we, in doing that, we fall into different traps. Uh, one of them is the divide and rule, because we lose sight that people are being racialized in other places with different markers. And, and, and it doesn't have to be the same thing. You see, it doesn't have to be marked in the same way. So you put people to fight each other about one is being marked by color, other is being marked by religion, other is being marked, you see, and then you have the divide and rule. Because then you have people fighting about, oh, you know, you're lighter skinned than me, and, and therefore you're whiter, those who think about color as the central category. Others who think about religion, they say, oh, but you're Christian, I'm Muslim, and, you're, and maybe you are better than me here. And then you have people fighting each other, the two groups below the line of the human fighting each other about, you know, who is really racial and who is not. In fact, both are racialized, but racialized differently. And so you have population racial along color line, population racial along religion, ethnicity, language, all kind of markers in, in the history of colonialism that are now reproduced inside the metropoles, you see? And, and then uh, we should go beyond, we should have a definition of racism that is broader and global. That's why I prefer to define it the way Fanon defined it, which is a structure of power, superiority, inferiority along the line of the human, rather than taking a particular expression of this as the definition. You know, if, if I make the, the particular expression such as color racism, the definition, then I might go to Ireland and say, oh, there was never racism here, and make a, a, a major mistake, you see? And, and vice versa, you see, uh, etc. So we need to, maybe an Irish go to the Americas and see that in Latin America, the white Creole elites were all Catholics, you know, and say, oh, you know, uh, there's no racism here because the Catholics here run the show. Well, there's racism in there, but not along the lines of religion, more along the lines of color, you see? So we need to be careful not to take the particular form that uh, we live or we've been inborn into, you see, 
and make it the universal definition and try to have a different notion that allows to understand the multiplicity of ways in which uh, the construction of racism has been done historically and then be able to, to, to do coalition with different groups that are being affected by the same problem, you see? Uh, so I, I would say that there is a, Islamophobia is very old as a form of racism, as I explained, it goes back to 16th century and how this medieval discrimination got, got uh, redefined. I'm saying this because also you have a lot of historiography saying that people talk about racism as something that goes back to Adam and Eve, you know, as if it was eternal human nature. Mm. If you make it an eternal human nature, then you have two problems here. First, you have, there's nothing you can do about it. Because if it's eternal human nature, we cannot change it. And second, we, we, the responsibility of the West in the production of this type of racial classification uh, becomes diminished. Because a lot of revisionist Western historians would like to say, well, you know, after all, we didn't do anything different from the Chinese or from the Muslim civilization or from the... And then they try to extrapolate everything to the band. They just repeat what everybody was doing. We just did it, you know, like everybody else. But this slavery, well, it was already there, you know, and oh, racism, it was already there. And they pushed everything into the past, okay? And then they washed their hands because after all, there's no responsibility. Well, this is the kind of universal abstract that uh, we need to avoid because it's a universal abstract. It's like slavery, and you take that word, and then you make it transhistorical, you see? And then it's the same, you know, from now to the Greek civilization, the Romans, the Muslim, everybody. And so what they did after 1492, you know, uh, racial slavery after 1492, well, it's the same as the past. Oh, racism, oh, the Chinese were already being racist, the Muslims were racist, Greeks were racist, everybody was racist in the past, okay? So we're not doing anything new. So it's a way of putting the history of the West with, you know, diminishing the responsibility of the West in the structures and devastation of power that exists today. Because we have a civilization that comes to power after 1492 with the European colonial expansion and producing a global system that have colonized all the planet by the end of the 19th century. There's nobody else outside or probably the end of the First World War with the end of the Ottomans. And, and everybody swallow up as a periphery, okay? And then the production of a system of power that, like many indigenous people in the world call it today, is a civilization of death. Be not only because they have killed more human beings than any other social system in world history, but because it also has killed forms of life in a non-anthropocentric way, like no other system in human history, to the point that we don't know if a hundred years from now we will be able to breathe, you know, to breathe, you say in English, no, to breathe. We might be, you know, there might be no life. We don't know what will happen in hundred years from now. And this is what indigenous people all over the world, Asia, Latin America, Africa, have been calling a civilization of death, okay? Because when you look at this system from the other underside of modernity, from the other side, okay, you could see that this system have more power structures than what 
it seems from the point of view of the westernized left. The westernized left, when they talk about, about the, the, I don't have time to develop this, but part of my work is decolonize the paradigms of political economy. And in the, in the westernized left cartography of power, they talk about two global power structures fundamentally. The international division of labor and the global interstate system along the logic of capital's accumulation at a world scale. The rest is just a superstructure of the system, racism, uh, sexism, or religion, or whatever is a superstructure. It's not a fundamental structure of the system. In my work on political economy, I have identified 15 global hierarchies of power, 15. I'm sure that you might see more than what I have seen. But when you shift the geography of reason from the north to the south, it becomes more visible all what is at stake in the system we live or in the civilization we live. But I don't think this is just an economic system. Capitalism is just one component of a multiple package of power relations that do not get exhausted by just the capitalist system. That's why I refuse to talk about global capitalism or capitalist world system or capitalist system. I refuse to use that language because the moment you use that language, and this is the language of the westernized left, the Eurocentric left, is to say that the problem is that we live in capitalism and that's it. Now, I prefer at the risk of something ridiculous to use a longer phrase. I don't have time to express all the 15, 17 hierarchies of power that I have identified in my work of the global system. But I can tell you that I prefer at the risk of something ridiculous to use a long phrase. I prefer to talk about a capitalist patriarchal, Western-centric, Christian-centric, modern colonial world system. I prefer to use a long phrase like that to talk about all the multiplicity of power hierarchies that exist in the world we live today, okay? And the kind of patriarchy that got globalized is the Christian Dom patriarchy. It's not patriarchy, it's Christian Dom patriarchy, the one that got globalized. And this is the one that went with the European colonial expansion everywhere, okay? Now, this, uh, this is a topic for another com long conversation, but I'm just throwing this on the table to say that if we want to think about decolonization, we need to think about the multiplicity of power relations. We need to think about spiritual decolonization, economic decolonization, political decolonization. Uh, we need to think about pedagogical decolonization. We need to think about there are a multiplicity of power relations that are not included in the paradigms of the westernized Eurocentric left when they talk about the system we live. And I find problematic to think or reduce the cartography of power of the system to only talk about capitalism and lose sight of structures of power global that are epistemological, where you have Eurocentric knowledge considered superior over other knowledges. That's what I will be calling epistemic racism. Structure of power that are also patriarchal, where you have Christian patriarchy and therefore a knowledge of Western males considered superior over all women in the world. That's why I talk about epistemic racism slash sexism. 
as a structure of power, and that you can see that in the in the westernized universities. Okay, and all the disciplines of the westernized universities. It's always about this structure that I will be discussing that more tomorrow, uh, but I call it epistemic racism, sexism, because it's basically the social theory of males of five countries, Italy, France, Germany, United Kingdom, and USA. When you go to any social science department in the westernized university, and I, I didn't say the western university, I said the westernized university, because it's a structure of power of the world system. You could find the Western University in London, but you could find it in Dakar. You could find the Western University in Paris, but you could find it in Kenya. You could find the Westernized University in Amsterdam, but you could find it also in Rio de Janeiro. So it's a structure of power, global power, that carries Eurocentric fundamentalism and epistemic racism, sexism globally. You see, and when you go to the department, sociology, anthropology, or philosophy, whatever, and go to any department in a Western university, it doesn't matter where in the world, you enter the room and you're reading the same guys. The same Western guys of these five countries. Okay? And these five countries compose only 12% of the population of the world. That means that the social theory or critical theory or scientific theory produced based on the social historical experience of these five countries is supposed to produce to, to give you the, the universal tools to apply and understand the rest of the world. You cannot have, have it more provincial like than that because the rest of the world doesn't have the social historical experience of the rest of the world. Okay? And uh, uh, there are social theories produced from those other spaces that are considered inferior and are not considered part of the canon of the social science or the humanities. And so when you read the canon of those disciplines, you're reading the same guys. So I'm saying this because uh, we're talking about a system that have multiplicity of power structure that are beyond the, the ones that we are accustomed to here uh, in the Western night left. Uh, anyway, I will go in more detail tomorrow, but I just wanted to give you this broad uh, historical grounding no? to, to have uh, go in more detail tomorrow. Are you going to be there tomorrow? I hope you, you could come. So I'm going to then go more over theory and over other things in more in depth. Thank you. Um, thank you, thank you very much. Um, I, just personally speaking, I, I just blew my mind. You said you said like a brief overview for me. That was like <laughs> we don't, we're not used to this kind of uh, talk and language and kind of perspective, especially I don't know in in, in the UK. Um, do people have any questions for Ramon? Come on. Um, I just had a quick. I feel like. I can really relate to what you're saying about um, this colonialization, kind of brainwashed generations and generations of people. But do you ever get challenged on a on an academic platform where people basically shun all your work or they say that they disagree with you? And how do you feel about that? How do you personally respond to that? Very interesting question because these are I will tell you a few of the of the reactions. 
The first one is to say that I am an anti-European fundamentalist. That's the first accusation, <laughs> okay? See, because it's, it's funny because my call, and I didn't have the time to develop today, I will develop more tomorrow, my talk tomorrow, my call is to have, instead of university, pluriversity. Instead of universals, pluriversals. That is, my call is to have the recognition that critical thinking and social scientific thinking has been developed in different parts of the world by different epistemologies, and that we have to have an inter-epistemic dialogue you see, between the different epistemologies as equals. What I mean by that is that I'm not excluding contributions made by the males of these five countries. There are things we can learn from there. The problem is that if we're going to use those theories in other parts of the world, we will have to decolonize them because a lot of these theories have been built upon the experience of five countries in the first world. They, have, they cannot say anything about what happened in third world countries that have a complete different experience of colonialism, racism, and so on. And so what I'm saying, yes, there are some things we can use from that tradition, the European tradition of the white males, okay? But we'll have to pass through a process of decolonization of this tradition to, be, to see what is useful, what is not useful for, for people uh, struggling for liberation in the third world. Uh, that's first. Second, if we're going to have inter-epistemic dialogue <coughs> on different epistemologies, the European tradition can enter to the conversation. So I'm anti-Eurocentric, I'm not anti-European. These are two different things. So they can enter to the conversation but as one more, not at the center anymore. They, they should not be a center anymore. They should be open-ended inter-epistemic dialogues as equal, horizontal. So they, they should, I, I'm accused of being they hear in what I'm saying, because I'm dissentering the European thinkers, male thinkers. Uh, they, what they hear is that I'm saying that, uh, you know, we shouldn't read any European. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying what I don't want to do to them what they have been doing to all of us. You see, they have been doing to us. What, the, what have they been doing to us? Silencing? invisibilizing, inferiorizing other ways of thinking and living and being in other parts of the world, okay? And now they project that, you see, I have these reactions in many academic settings where people hear me saying these things, calling by the name of epistemic racism, sexism, this, the foundation of the westernized university, because it's all about these white males of these five countries. When you read the canon of the disciplines, in, it's all the white males of these five countries. Only these five countries. They don't even include other countries of the West. You know, like from Spain or Portugal, all these other places, they are out. They privilege males of these five countries in the discipline of social science, in the humanities, wherever you go, it's always the same guys. And so what I'm saying is, to break away from that, from this Eurocentric fundamentalism, we need to open a conversation in which we have inter-epistemic dialogue as equals. Now, that means that we're not going to reject European tradition of thought, of, of these white males. They could enter the conversation, but they have to enter as one more and open 
to a dialogue as in a horizontal way. If they're, if they're able to do that, welcome to the room. But if they keep thinking that the only way you can do social science, critical theory, philosophy, etc., is by 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 uh, uh, citing them and reading them and using only their theories and the other ones are inferior, then there's no conversation there. You see? So this is one of the main reactions I get when I present this. They think that they accuse me of being a, 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 an anti-European fundamentalist. In fact, this Euros this epistemic racism sexism as an epistemic foundation of the Western University and the Western I left is a Eurocentric fundamentalism. But it's, it has become the norm to such a point or such an extent that we don't call it a fundamentalism. We call it social science. Or we call it philosophy. We call it social theory, you see? And we fall in the traps. Because, in fact, this is a form of fundamentalism because they are excluding everybody else in the world, including women, Western and non-Western women, who are critical thinkers, are out of the conversation too. So this is just why I call it epistemic racism slash sexism. They, they go together, you see? They're excluding racism because it excludes male and women from the non-Western world, and sexism because they exclude all women, Western and non-Western. Who is left? White males of these five countries. Italy, France, Germany, UK, and USA. And that's what is considered social theories, uh, critical theory, uh, philosophy, uh, social scientific theory, and so on. Okay? Now, this is, you cannot get it more provincial like that. They disguise this as if it was universal and valid for everybody. And so you want to do social science in Brazil, you have to read the same white male of these five countries, and then you're authorized to talk as a sociologist or anthropologist or political scientist, etc. Okay? Now, this is completely provincial. This is very problematic. This is nonsense. In the world we live today, this is nonsense. Uh, and it's been nonsense not only in the world we live today, it's been nonsense for a long time. Okay? But it's just that now the the power of the West is is that is you know, declining, and it becomes more evident how provincial this is, okay? But uh, it's really a, a form of racism and sexism, and see, we never hear in the, in, the, in the press anywhere that Eurocentric fundamentalism has killed one million people in Iraq, you see? We never see that. Eurocentric fundamentalism from the invasion of Iraq 2003 to today are killing more than one million people there. But that's not in the front page of any newspaper. Because see, they define they are a they are a fundamentalism that practice epistemic racism, sexism to everybody else. They become the norm, and therefore they're the ones who define who is a fundamentalist and who is not. And of course, in their definition, they're never a fundamentalist. You see? Why? Because they define fundamentalism in the following way. Anybody who reads a sacred text and turns it into a political platform is a fundamentalist. That's how they define it. Because the West claim to be secular, then they're outside that definition and they're never fundamentalist. Okay? But what happened? The, what about 
positivism as a form of fundamentalism from science? Or what about Stalinism as a form of fundamentalism from Marx? Or what about, and there are different forms of fundamentalism, you see, uh, that you could see inside the West that uh, escape that definition. Not to talk about the fact that what we call the West today is really secularization of Christian theology. You see, uh, uh, and, and that's what we call today secular world. It's really Christian-centric, you see? And, and so they use a definition in which they hide themselves as fundamentalists, and then they call everybody else fundamentalist. You see? And uh, this is a trap, you see? Because I'm, I'm, I'm saying that Eurocentric fundamentalism is the most dangerous form of fundamentalism for two reasons. First reason, because they have the political military means to impose their view everywhere else. Okay? And second, because the Eurocentric fundamentalism produced binaries that produce the other forms of third world fundamentalisms. For example, if you take someone like Bin Laden, okay, that is a form of a Islamic fundamentalism, okay? By the way, the fundamentalism in Islam or in, in, in the indigenous world or African world are minorities, but, you know, very, very insignificant minorities exaggerated by the Western press, okay? Let's begin with that. And someone like Bin Laden, okay, a, a Wahhabi, okay, is just as Eurocentric as Eurocentric fundamentalism. They're just inverting the binaries of Eurocentric fundamentalism. If Eurocentric fundamentalism says the West is democratic, the non-West is authoritarian, Bin Laden and that kind of fundamentalism, they just invert the binary, the same Eurocentric binary, accept it and just invert it and say, yes, you are democratic, I am not, but I'm better than you. They're not displacing the binary. Displacing the body would mean that democracy is something that exists in all the cultures and all the epistemologies of the world. They just have these different terms to talk about democracy in different ways. You see, the word democracy is another word like, like I use Spain or like I used before the Americas. It's a term we use today to communicate, but in fact, we don't have to use that term. There are other terms in other cultures. Okay, the Tojolabales, indigenous people south of Mexico, they call it uh, they talk about democracy as commanding well of being, which is a different concept from liberal democracy, because in, in that concept, uh, the people who command obey the community, you see, and the people who obey uh, uh, the, the community are the ones commanding. So it's an, uh, there is a symbiosis there, and they call their, their structural form of democracy caracoles, which are, which in Spanish, in English mean the shells. You know, these are indigenous people with a form of democracy you know, that uh, in many ways is even better than what we call liberal democracy. And then you have other forms of democracy in Islam, in, in, in other cultures, you see? But the West have kidnapped the, the, the word democracy, make it into inherently and naturally Western, and then creates a binary in which the non-West inherently and naturally authoritarian, you see? It just at that binary, you fall into Eurocentric fundamentalism. You're not displacing this binary. If you just invert it like this, you're leaving the binary intact. You're just 
putting what was before below up and what was before above down. But the binary is the same. And this is what happened with many of the fundamentalists of indigenous world or African world or Islamic world or other worlds, you know? I call them variations of Eurocentric, or Eurocentric fundamentalism. So that's why I'm saying that it's the most dangerous because it not only has the military means to impose itself, but it also produces the other forms of fundamentalism that are as Eurocentric fundamentalists as the uh, uh, dominant form of Eurocentric fundamentalism. Now, you have, and we know, in many parts of the world, uh, uh, people thinking from Islam, from indigenous cosmology, from other perspectives, and producing knowledge that goes beyond these binaries. You see, and think of woman liberation from Islamic perspective, or think of democracy from Islamic perspective, or from indigenous perspective, from other perspectives. So the idea that the West is inherently and naturally for liberation and for liberty and democracy and, and all this thing is a binary of the West that what happened with the third world fundamentalists is that they just accept the binary, just invert it without displacing the binary. This binary, we need to displace it, to destroy it, because it's not true that the only place where you have democracy is in the West. It's not true that the only form of democracy is liberal democracy. It's not true that the only place where you have human liberation is in the West. It's not true that the only way to have human liberation is the Western feminist way. Okay? It's not true that, and so on. These are binaries created by, the, by Eurocentric fundamentalism, precisely, you see, to produce other forms of Eurocentric fundamentalism of, of the third world kind. And that's why I say it's the most dangerous. But we never call it a fundamentalism. It's the norm, you see? And we, we see in the press the whole time, oh, Islamic fundamentalists, oh, indigenous fundamentalists are doing this or that. But we never see in the press that Eurocentric fundamentalism has killed one million people in Iraq in the last 10 years, you know? Not to talk about Afghanistan, not to talk about other places, OK? Anyway. Any any other questions? I have some, but does anyone else have any? Uh, actually, I'm going to ask something. Uh, the writing that they gave us to read, uh, your article, you mentioned that the Europeans have a Hitler complex, as it were, uh, this I Hitler complex, this idea of uh, destroying the other. Would you say that's still true of the Europeans in light of what they've done in terms of modern international law and the structures that they put in place? Well, basically, what I'm saying there is that you have. Uh, that Hitlerism, I'm using here a Messeser's insight, a book called Discourse on Colonialism that I highly recommend you to read, Discourse on Colonialism. You could find it on the internet, PDF. It was written in 1950. Keep that in mind, the year 1950. When you read that Discourse on Colonialism by a Messeser, a me is A-I-M-E, and Cesar is C-E-S-A-I-R-E. C-E-S-A-I-R-E. This is the, the teacher of Franz Fanon. It's a, it's a black Martinican guy uh, who wrote this essay called Discourse on Colonial. He wrote many other things, but... Uh, this essay, this concordance, I highly recommend because it's basically saying there that Hitlerism uh, is really contrary to what Europeans think or say. It's not an anomaly 
of European history or modernity. Hitlerism is colonialism coming back to haunt Europe. That is Hitlerism, he says, is the spirit of the colonial imperial man now doing to Europeans what Europeans have been doing to the rest of the non-European world over 400, 500 years. This is the point he's making. He's saying Hitlerism exists even before Hitler was born. Because if you examine carefully what Hitler did, what he did in Europe was a continuation of what Europeans have been doing through colonial expansion in other parts of the world. Here comes now a European man who stand up in the middle of Europe and say, you know what, I am the superior race. You French, you Dutch, you Belgium, you, you are inferior to me. We are the Aryan men, we're superior to you, and therefore we are allowed now to colonize you. Okay, now we're allowed to practice genocide, to, to do everything else that were being done to the rest of the world. Okay? So the the point is not that Europeans are Hitler-like. I'm not saying that, okay? I'm saying that the Hitlerism is the the Hitlerism is the spirit of colonialism, okay? And he says that in every European humanist, he says in this text, there is a Hitler inside. Because the moment you look at the rest of the world as inferior to you, you're just reproducing Hitlerism. You see? The moment you practice colonialism, you torture, you uh, uh, kill people elsewhere, okay? You practice genocide. You crimes, practice crimes against humanity. This is Hitler once again talking. This is what I'm trying to say. You see, I'm following the spirit here of the, the, the writing of MSSR in that essay called Discourse on Colonialism. Why MSSR was able to say that in 1950? I mean, today a lot of European philosophers and thinkers are still figuring out what the hell happened with the Holocaust and with Hitler, and then trying to figure it out, oh, this is an anomaly, oh, no, this goes back to the parias in the Roman Empire and things like that, and they get lost. Here goes a messenger, a man from the Caribbean, and in 1950, five years after the Holocaust, say, hey, wait a minute, this is very easy to find out. Who is this guy? This is, this is the imperial colonial man now coming back to do to Europeans what you Europeans have been doing to all of us for 400 years. Because the methods of Hitler are just a repetition of colonial methods, but now practiced inside Europe. This inside of Cesarda at the time was an intuition. He didn't have any evidence to say that. But coming from the history of enslavement and colonialism in the Caribbean, he's he look at Hitler and say, I saw this man already over here. This guy have, have, have been passing through the Caribbean for 400 years. We've seen these guys here. This is not that different from what we've seen. You see the point? So it's not, you say it's an anomaly. This is the same guys have been going around the world doing all these atrocities. <coughs> it's just that now he's doing it to you guys. Okay. Now, 
he was able to say that because he's thinking from another geography reason. He's thinking from a perspective of the South. And he sees in Hitler just a repetition of all colonial methods, enslavement, colonization, genocide, everything now done to other Europeans. You see the point? And so his, his take here is that uh, if you look at the Holocaust this way, as I say in the video that is online, if you look at the Holocaust this way, then you take the Holocaust away from interpretation of the Holocaust as some exceptional event. And you start looking at the Holocaust as a continuation of the history of colonialism. And the moment you put it that way, you get to two different conclusions. If you say the Holocaust is something exceptional that was done against Jews, then the conclusion is never again against Jews. But if you say the Holocaust is, with all these particularities, with each genocide have particularities, but it's a continuation of the history of colonialism now being implemented inside Europe, then the never again should be never again against any human being. <coughs> and that takes you into different paths. See? And this is very important for the debates about Zionism today. Because Zionism has taken the conclusion of Holocaust as an exceptionalism, delink from European colonial history, they delink it from European colonial history, make it into some exceptional event and make the conclusion into never again against Jews. Therefore, they feel justified of doing all kinds of atrocities against anybody they feel as a threat. It doesn't matter if it's a real threat. And now they go and practice colonialism in Palestine, and they do the same atrocities in Palestine, including crimes against humanity and genocide in Palestine, and now I'm following the definition of the international law. When you decide how many calories a group of people can eat every day, that's, that's considered in international law genocide. Okay? They're deciding how many calories a whole population can have per day. Okay? When you have all these crimes and killings, Okay, uh, every single day of Palestinians, you know, we're talking about here a, a question of genocide, taking territory out of the people, of the hands of the people, taking the land away by force, displacing them from the land. I mean, this is a, a genocide. And this has been going on for a long time in other parts of the world. But since the conclusion is that never again against Jews, you see, then they feel justified of doing this to other people because the conclusion of the Holocaust has been limited and has been captured in this narrow way, you see, when in fact the conclusion of the Holocaust should be never again against any other human being. And this is the trap in which Europe is today. They feel that they should support Israel because Europe has a debt with the genocide against Jews in the Second World War, and now they feel like the Jews are justified to do whatever. I'm sorry. This is unacceptable. This is unacceptable. 
because what we're doing here is just repeating again the same colonial methods that caused the Holocaust in Europe now against Palestinians. And so the conclusions that we have to derive is never again against any human being and how genocide is linked to colonialism. And we need to understand that process, especially settler colonialism, is tied to forms of genocide everywhere it goes. Settler colonialism, this form of colonialism is highly correlated with genocide. You could see that in Australia with Aboriginal people, you could see that in North America with indigenous people in the 19th century. You could see that in New Zealand, you could see that in many parts of the world. Wherever you have settler colonialism, you have genocide. And that's exactly what the Germans were doing in Eastern Europe with the Ukrainians and with Jews and with gypsies and with you know, Roma people, I mean, and many other people, okay? And the same thing uh, they were doing in, uh, in, in other parts of the world, the Europeans. So we have to, to take the conclusions correctly. And now Israel is doing settler colonialism there and practicing genocide. I mean, this is what happened. When you don't get the correct conclusion of history, you end up with a mess up like we have today. And you have now Europe going after Israel and supporting everything Israel does and protecting Israel and the USA too. Okay? And even though they're doing the same thing that uh, Hitlerism was doing against Jews in Europe and other people in Europe, not just Jews. Any other questions for us? Um, I was interested in knowing that um, when the indigenous people um, kind of got together and joined hands in, as part of this war of li liberation, then how did this all dismantle afterwards when they were like uh, recolonized by the by the Christian by the Catholics? I'm sorry, the first part. So you know, you were saying um, within those sixty days. Basically, there was a joining for, for the liberation. Yes, yes. You, you could see this coexistence of spiritualities. Yes. Then how did this dismantle afterwards? Yeah, what no, this, this the, the power structure was put in place over a period, I don't know how many centuries. It was like 700-something centuries. Uh, more, maybe 800 centuries. Uh, the power st structure of the Islamic political authority in Al-Andalus, al, you know, allow for the coexistence of multiple spiritualities, multiple identities, <coughs> you see? Uh, that was destroyed by the Catholic monarchy in its conquest of Al-Andalus. The question I pose is what happened that they were defeated? And they were defeated because of a lot of political weaknesses. One of them that when they had the caliphate, they have a one political structure that was very powerful. When the caliphate of Cordoba uh, declined, then you have the balkanization of many sultanates all over Al-Andalus with these same, same kind of structures, okay, where you have Jews and Christians, etc., inside the territory uh, allowed to practice their religion and spirituality. It's no problem. But then the problem is that there were power struggles between the Islamic different sultanates, mm -hmm. you see? And at some point, the Christians begin aligning with one against the others, you see? Divide and conquer. Divide and conquer, you see? And there were also a lot of problems. Some of them were corrupted sultanates. 
where they lost the support of the people and there were uprisings and there were things like that happening, you see? And I'm saying this just for the, the, you know, that we have to have a critical view also of the most Muslim power. We cannot also look at it in a romantic way, in a romantic way or in a naive way, you see? We need to uh, look at it in, you know, in, its, in a critical way too. You see, but there was something there that was, I would say, different and better than what the Spanish monarchy was imposing. It was the possibility of having a form of political authority that allowed for the coexistence of multiple identities, multiple spiritualities, you see, uh, that didn't happen with the Christian power structure. You see, the Christian power structure was like the demolished machine, you see, of this epistemic racism, sexism, I've been talking about, uh, is produce epistemicide. Not just genocide, but epistemicide. Because you have the destruction of other knowledges. You see? Uh, and that destruction, the, the, the Western University is a, is a machine of destruction of other epistemologies. Okay? Uh, and in terms of your question, we need to examine critically that period. We, we cannot romanticize it, you know? But at the same time, we have to say the thing we, that need to be said, that there was no conquest of, of, of this territory that we call today Spain. That's, that's not a proper or correct historiography. This is what had been put forward by the Spanish monarchy after they conquered the place. They used the term reconquest, you see? This reconquest, this are either was added, you see, with this narrative that they were invaded by the Muslim. I even see Muslim using the word the conquest, the Muslim conquest of Spain. It's terrible to hear Muslims even repeating that, okay? Because this is now internal colonization. Now you have adopted the language of Eurocentric historians, you see? Uh, and see, and we need to break away from that language. See, so all I'm doing is putting together without falling into a romanticization because they were defeated for, for because of the problem they were having inside. Can I ask my question? I have a few. Um, I was fascinated when you spoke about the Eurocentric, Western Eurocentric left. Uh, at least in the UK, we have many left-wing groups that, you know, socialists and whatnot. And for them, the struggle is against capitalism. And they, you know, they say the only fight is a class war. The only war is a class war. Now, you said that this was kind of limited in its thought. Can you just expand on that and see, for example, especially us Muslims, a lot of Muslims get involved in these left-wing groups and start calling themselves socialists and kind of adopt this idea of what you call the Western Eurocentric left. Um, and you, you yeah. just touched upon its limitations. Yeah, it's limited because, as I was saying, I don't know if that article was a, an article called Decolonizing Postcolonial Studies and Political Economy. Do you have that article? Was that circulated? It might have been on the back. It was on the compulsory reading. It was not? There were a few articles. That was the one I saw. Okay, because that's one of the main... Uh, that article is the one I'm mentioning that deals with this question about uh, the, the, the paradigms of political economy put forward by the westernized left. That they identify fundamentally two global structures of power, the international division of labor and the interstate system. Along both structures, as global structures, you know, that words functional to the logic of capitalist accumulation are worse scale, 
right? When you look at the system this way, you think that the main problem of the system is an economic problem, you see? The rest is okay, it's just the economic problem, you see? And the rest, if there is any problem, is a derivation of this, you see? It's derivative, it's secondary, it's superstructural, you see? What I'm trying to say is that we're not dealing with an economic system, we're dealing with a civilization. And what I'm trying to say is that the world system we live is a civilization that have a multiplicity of power hierarchies in which capitalism is one of those power hierarchies, a fundamental one, but it's not the only one, okay? And what I'm trying to say is that what we have is a, a multiplicity of power relation that includes not only the international division of labor and the global interstate system of the West and the rest states of the West controlling political and militarily the non-West, but you have also a, a racial ethnic hierarchies at a global scale of the West over the rest. You have also a Christian patriarchal hierarchy. Okay, this, uh, we need to name it. This is a Christian patriarchy, the one that got globalized, exercising a domination at the level of gender and sexuality at a world scale, okay? You have also pedagogical hierarchies. You have linguistic hierarchies. You have epistemic hierarchy. We've been talking about the epistemic one, and we're going to talk more about the epistemic one tomorrow, okay? You have, all of them have institutions, ideologies, etc. You know, you have pedagogical hierarchy, you have epistemic hierarchy, you have spiritual hierarchies, where you have Christian-centric structures or Christian dom becoming hegemonic over other spiritualities, okay? You have art aesthetic structures where the Western art is considered superior over non-Western art. You see, you have, a, you have a multiplicity. In my work, I identify, I can send you right away. A, if you give me your email, you could forward to everybody now, no? Can yes, you do that? I can do that. Yeah, because then I can send you in a second the article you could forward to everybody where I mentioned this discussion about the multiple her power hierarchy. I'm saying that it's not class. There's no last instance, like the Marxists would like to say, okay? Because you have a multiplicity of power hierarchy. I, ident I identify 15. The Marxists, I mean, this political economy, Western right, left, is two hierarchies. I identify 15. I'm sure there are more that I haven't seen, and probably you read my paper and you say, hey, you forgot this one, you know? Uh, so I'm sure what I'm trying to say is that you cannot solve the problems of this system by just class struggle. That's the fallacy of 20th century socialism. 20th century socialism fall into the traps of thinking that the problem was economic, and therefore if you solve the class problem and the economic problem, you solve the rest. Well, guess what? Not only they didn't solve the rest, they didn't even solve the one they were supposed to solve. Why? Because the system is not an economic system, it's a civilization. So you organize against capital in racist way, in Eurocentric ways, in Christianocentric ways, in sexist ways, okay? You reproduce the whole thing again. 
You see the point? So 20th century socialism is a good example of this. They organize against capital in Eurocentric ways, in racist ways, in sexist ways, in Christian-centric ways, in, and then it corrupted the struggle. Because the moment you organize this way, you create the seeds of this, the, the, the reproduction of the same thing again. And that's why they ended up in state capitalism all over the world. They didn't even solve the one they proposed to solve. Why? Because they thought the system was economic. They forgot or, or were blind to the, to the idea coming from the global south and from indigenous people in the global south, from Islamic thinkers in the global south, okay, from black thinkers <coughs> of the global south that have always said, this is not just an economic system, this is a civilization. And a civilization is broader than just an economic system. You don't deal with all these issues, you're going to just reproduce the whole monster again. You corrupt the struggle of the, of, of, of the one you're proposing to, to solve because you just bring in all the chips of the civilization and then the whole struggle against capital become corrupted. That's what happened with the Soviet Union and the Soviet bloc worldwide. It was a project, a Eurocentric colonial project, imperial project from the left, reproducing all the problems of the left. Imperialism, colonialism, Eurocentrism, racism, sexism, you name it, all the list. Christian-centric, even though they, they claim to be atheists, they were really Christian-centric in their ways, in their cosmologies. They were just secularizing Christianity in their, in their language. You see the point? So it was, so... So, so what you're saying is essentially that the, the, what happened <coughs> with the Soviet Union, the corruption <coughs> that we saw in the Soviet Union was down to the to the limitations of the Marxist ideology of just seeing it as an economic and a class struggle. I'm saying that that's not enough because this, the system we live is not an economic, only an economic system. It has economic components. Capitalism is important and no one to underestimate it. It's very important, but it's not the only thing in town. You have multiple hierarchies of power. When you read this essay, you understand what I mean. There are multiple hierarchies of power that these paradigms of the Westernized left are blind to it. And so they treat racism, Eurocentrism, or things like that. They don't even treat Eurocentrism. That's not a topic for them. But they don't think Christianocentrism. They think they're atheists and they're beyond everything. Okay? Uh, they don't treat the, the uh, they treat racism as something derivative of capital, of class. They don't see it as organizing principle of class. You see, racism is an organizing principle. Who does what and how much you earn in the capitalist system depends on how you classify along racial lines. So it's not a superstructure derivative. It's an organizing principle of the international division of labor in, cap in the capitalist system. We need, it's, it's the other way around, you see? But you can only take this point of view. You look at it from the global south. That is from the point of view of people who are thinking from the zone of non-being. I was saying before, you see? If you look at it from the zone of non-being, it shifts your view, you see? If you look at it from the zone of being, you, you get blind to many of these things. Because from the zone of being, if you look at European colonial expansion 1492, you think that the main logic, look at it from that gaze, the new logic of the new system, okay, is economic. If you ask them, what about Christianocentrism? What about, uh, uh, you know, what about 
the pedagogical structures, the linguistic structure, the, all the other structure of power, you know, racism, all this stuff. There was, all oh, this was here before. This is not new. Well, Christianum was there before, that's true. But it's not new for whom? For Europeans, might not be new. For, for indigenous people in the Americas, that was new. That came with the colonial project. So you cannot say that it's only economic system that expanded there. There was a whole package of power relation that expanded in the, in the first moment in 1492 to the America, and then it expanded to other parts, Africa, Asia, to the rest of the world. But it carried in the colonial expansion all these other power structures, you see. If you look at it from a European point of view, you say, well, but you know, Christian patriarchy was not new. It was not new in Europe, but it was new in many parts of Africa, in many parts of the America, in many parts of Asia. So it had to be a structure of the world system. You cannot take it out. The same thing with Eurocentrism. The same thing with Christianocentrism. The same thing with racism. The same thing with many things that were not there when the Europeans went to these places, you see? And therefore, they have to be an, in, a, 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 an inherent structure. They have to be an inherent structure of this new system. You cannot leave them aside just because they existed in Europe. So you're making local European history world history. That's a, a fallacy of Eurocentrism. You cannot make local European history world history. Local European history is local European history. It's not necessarily the same history elsewhere. But if they, then this part of the world expands and colonizes this other part and carry all these structures over there, then you cannot say that it's only the economic system, the one that is that matters because these other structures were already there before. Well, they, they were already in Europe before, but not in other parts of the world. So they have to be included as part of the structure. This is, that's why people in the global south use the term civilization. They don't use the westernized language of capitalist system. They use the term civilization, western civilization. Because they're talking about a broader structure of power a broader package of power relations that do not get exhausted by just an economic system. And that's why at the risk of something ridiculous, I refuse to use the term capitalist world system, world capitalism. I prefer to use a something that you know, sound, might sound ridiculous, which is a long phrase. I prefer to say we're living in a, a civilization that I will call a capitalist slash patriarchal, Western-centric, slash Christian-centric, modern slash colonial world system. I prefer to use a long phrase like that to put in the table everything that is at stake rather than just, oh, capitalist system. If you use capitalist system, you immediately invisibilize all the other things that are at stake. Epistemic structures of power, pedagogical structures of power, racial ethnic structures of power, you see, uh, uh, many other structures of power, media structures of power, media structures of power. Uh, you know, there are many structures of power that get invisibilized. You say, oh, the capitalist system. You say, capital, oh, the capitalist world system. But you say that and every, immediately it, it, it brings you into the economics. You see, and the assumption is you solve the economics, you solve the rest. And my point is, look what happened with 20th century socialism based on that assumption. Not only they didn't solve the rest, they didn't even solve what they were supposed to solve. Because they had the wrong analysis and put the, the causation in the wrong place. 
You see? And they thought that Eurocentrism doesn't matter. Christianocentrism doesn't matter. Racism doesn't matter. All these things doesn't matter. What matters is class. You see? Everything else is secondary. We solve class, we solve the rest. It's not true. All these things are... So we need to break also with the idea of a last instant of the Marxists, okay? Or the idea that all this global structure exists as separate entities. That's why you have in the black feminist the idea of intersectionality, or you have uh, ideas like heterarchy, like in the entanglement of multiple hierarchies historically. So you cannot, I cannot say how the colonial, this capitalist, patriarchal, modern colonial, Western-centric, Christian-centric world system operates in every part of the world. In each part, you have different histories, you see, and different entanglements of how these structures got entangled. You cannot a priori say it's this way or that way. You need to historicize this. But the Marxists will say, no, no, no. What matters is economic. What you need to look at is the economic system that was put in place in Africa and um, Latin America, each everywhere, and that's how you explain everything. That's what the Marxists will say. The westernized left. That's like uh, having, uh, uh, you know, this dehistoricizing the particularities of many places. <coughs> and also, they fall in the traps of epistemic racism, sexism, I was talking before. <coughs> because they don't take seriously the critical thought of coming from other epistemologies. For them, it's again the critical thinkers of the five countries, but now from the left. <coughs> so they fall into a colonialism of the left. You know, they don't take seriously critical thought from other parts of the world. Cool. <coughs> I think we're out of time now. It's uh, gone past six. Okay, um, give me your. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll wait. Give me your. Uh, okay, I'll give you here the the reference okay. and pass it to everybody. Okay, this article, maybe I forgot to pass it on. No, no problem. Uh, you have access to the email of everybody here? Yeah, yeah, I will. Okay, right. put, put okay, here okay. Your, your email. Can we have a round of applause for Roman? Oh, thank you. Thank you, thank you.